Hello, and welcome to the Orthopod. My name is Liam Fernando Canavan. I'm a medical student at the University of Melbourne, and this is a podcast where I'll take a history from experts in orthopaedic and musculoskeletal medicine. Dr. Sean Stevens is a general surgeon and the director of the General and Trauma Emergency Surgery Unit at Austin Health. Sean has interests in global surgery and has previously completed a Master of Public Health and led project work in Kenya and East Timor. Sean is also the supervisor of pre-vocational surgical training at Austin Health. His background in surgical education includes the completion of a Master of Surgical Education and he is currently a PhD candidate within the University of Melbourne Department of Surgery investigating the use of multidisciplinary simulation in trauma care. Welcome to the Orthopod, Sean. Thanks, Liam. So in a few months, it'll be a year since you started the General and Trauma Emergency Surgery GATES unit at the Austin Hospital. As the director of GATES, can you explain what the unit does, which wasn't already available at the Austin, and what was it like setting up a new surgical unit in a big metropolitan hospital? Yep. So this has been uh, a real privilege to be involved in in setting up a new unit at a a tertiary hospital. So the the background to Gates is there's two areas where Austin identified it was underperforming. One was in getting patients access to emergency general surgery. So patients who'd come in, been admitted, and they needed a appendicectomy or cholecystectomy, and there's this delays in getting into theatre to get their surgery which is leading to bed block and elective surgery getting cancelled. So that was one issue. The other was around uh, trauma. So from when I was an intern here in 2009 to, to now, the trauma workloads increased enormously. And although Austin's a level two, what's called a level two trauma hospital, with Royal Melbourne and Alfred being the level one trauma hospitals in, in Melbourne, uh, as a level two trauma hospital, we're seeing a lot more trauma come in. The, the types of trauma patients we're seeing has really changed over the past 10, 20 years. We're seeing a lot more geriatric trauma. Uh, so that, what that might look like is someone over 65 has multiple medical comorbidities, they might be anticoagulated, they've had a fall from standing height, and despite that low energy mechanism, they've still managed to sustain an impressive list of injuries like intracranial bleed, uh, maybe a spinal fracture, maybe a few rib fractures. And their care is quite complex and often involves coordinating neurosurgery, thoracic surgery, orthopaedic surgery, as well as acute pain service and, and general medicine. So we found that Austin was struggling with coordinating the care for all those patients when they were admitted across three different general surgery units. So the idea behind Gates was to centralise the coordination of trauma care with, with one general surgery unit as well as that same unit would also have some designated daily theatre lists for doing emergency general surgery. So there are two aims, to coordinate trauma care and better access to emergency surgery. And how's it been, you know, has things changed since when you first started it to where we are now? I think um, what we've seen is in in the space of trauma, uh, while a lot of us who've been involved in this space were aware of the increased trauma workload, I think now that we have a unit that's really focusing on it, it's unmasked that workload even more so. Um, So we're we're admitting under our unit about 15 trauma patients a week, uh, majority of which are quite complex and will involve uh, the coordination of multiple units. And particularly in the the geriatric trauma, the patients have their own particular needs uh, and developing various protocols and policies around that, which we've been, been doing, I think is significantly going to improve the quality of care we can provide for that patient group. 
So it's been pleasing to be part of that process and there's a lot of people and teams that have been contributing. And then from the, the point of view of emergency surgery, I think we've been able to achieve getting people to theatre a lot quicker uh, for their emergency surgery, getting into theatre, getting home safely and quickly, and then hopefully freeing up a few more hospital beds. COVID, of course, has disrupted things, but as we get back to trying to tackle this enormous backlog of elective surgery, having an efficient emergency surgery pathway is going to be really important. So in addition to your role as the director of Gates, PhD candidate and elite marathon runner, which I'll get to later, you've also been a medical officer in the army for 10 years. What does that entail and how did you get involved in it? So joining the military is something I'd thought about for a long time, um, though I didn't know anyone uh, well who was in the military. And it's hard to really understand much about the military from the outside. So eventually I decided I was just going to join and try it out for myself. And I'm pleased that I have had a lot of really good experiences involved in the military. And I don't want to overstate my involvement. Uh, I haven't, haven't, haven't been on deployment to war zones or anything like that. But I've had the pleasure of being involved in a lot of courses and, and exercises in Australia. And the highlights would be some of the people that I've met uh, and the diversity of people I've met, which is not something I had expected from looking at the military from the outside. The learning about leadership and and also followership as well, some, some concepts that were not that familiar to me before I joined. And th- these skills are just so useful in, in any aspect of life and particularly useful in, in surgery and, and in my role with Gates as well. So it's just been a fantastic experience. Uh, in terms of what did I actually do, so there's, there's a few different um, aspects to it. Most medical specialists will be within a particular unit. It's called 3HSB, which is what I'm part of. And we're sort of warehoused here and available for deployment if, if need arises. But when we're not on deployment, other things that we're doing is running exercises or supporting exercises in Australia uh, or involved in education and training. And so we've got medics and nursing officers and, and other junior medical officers and we'll, we'll coordinate their training. And they're pretty fun, interesting uh, exercises to be involved in. One question, because you mentioned leadership, and one thing I noticed when I've been able to scrub in with you or watch you involved in the operating theatre you have such a you've got a really interesting way of sort of announcing yourself in the just you know pre-op talking to the scrub nurses the other the, the registrars if there's medical students there you know you sort of not in an arrogant way or anything but you walk in there and say hi I'm Sean I'm the surgeon today and you sort of set the tone that not that you're you know going to be the boss and tell everyone what to do but you know this is who I am and I'm here to perform the surgery today. Is that something you've always done or do you feel like maybe your sort of leadership skills draw, draw anything from being a medical officer? It's just, I think it's a really cool thing that you do when you start an operation. It's an interesting observation. Um, so the, certainly the military experience and trainings helped with this. Going into the military, to be honest, I wasn't sure if I'd fit in with my personality type. I don't have a loud, domineering personality style. And I had this conception that that was what leadership was before joining the army. And having been inside army, I realised that that's not the case. There's many different styles of leadership uh, that can be equally as effective. And what the army trains us to do is develop our own leadership philosophy. And so that's something I spent quite a few hours reading, thinking and writing about. And it's a very useful personal exercise to do to work out this is how I'm going to operate as a leader. So what, what you've observed is, is my leadership style that works for me, suits my personality and that I think is effective. 
yeah, I think it's great. It's um, yeah. certainly something that I think I would like to adopt in, you know, whether I'm playing cricket or in the future, should I be fortunate enough to get into a surgical training program and end up like you? I think it's really interesting. You know, your leadership obviously is something that you also, you know, those skills you take into your teaching as well. And it's famously said, those who can do, those who understand, teach. In healthcare, there's an expectation placed on doctors to practice medicine and teach people like me, a medical student, but often people don't actually have any formal training as an educator. You are someone who's unique in that sense because you're a trained surgeon, but also a trained surgical educator. You've got a Master of Surgical Education. Do you find the classic apprenticeship model of teaching medicine and surgery where, you know, the medical student or the registrar just learns from the master um, a bit problematic? Could it be done better, perhaps? Hmm. So there's, there's a lot in this question. Um, the master apprenticeship model or um, master student models been used in a lot of different fields, science, medicine, humanities, arts, religion, throughout you know, time and place. And I think we'd have to say that it at least can be successful, given all the people who've gone through that who've achieved excellence in their field. The, the problem I see with it is about standardisation. So you have a a master who's truly excellent in their field, they're motivated to teach and they're of good character, and with the right student they can achieve great results. But the problem is not everyone's going to have that opportunity and experience. And it's in the community's interest that we have all people performing a particular uh, service to community, achieving a particular standard. Obviously that would apply to medicine. So I think it's... And and the other thing is society changes over time. So we look at... um, sticking to medicine, looking at the way public hospitals work, where most training takes place, most units will have a number of consultants on the unit, um, but each consultant may only be there for a short amount of time. It might be one operating list per week or even less. Uh, And then trainees will rotate between hospitals um, throughout the five or six years of their training. So there's just not that opportunity to do a true master apprenticeship training model. So we have to look for other other methods, uh, just as a function of how society is now operating. So I think transitioning to competency-based training makes sense. I don't think we necessarily have a true competency-based training program. At least um, we don't yet in general surgery, but it's arguably much more embedded in the new program that's coming into place, and I think that's true for some of the other specialties. So, And I suppose that makes sense. It's a transition rather than an abrupt change from one to the other. But I think that competency-based training is the way to go. Um, an extension of that would be mastery-based training, which would be coming into educational theory about you don't just try to get to a particular level, you constantly try to keep getting better, and so you could apply that to beyond achieving consultantship, that you continue to strive to get better after that. There's certainly, you know, this, the model of, of teaching still requires people to teach, and but not everyone has the same background that you do. Mm-hmm. So... Is, is that just part of medicine? If you become a doctor, you have to teach medical students or registrars? So I think that's a flaw in the system. And some people have heard me say this before, that my two-year-old's kindergarten teacher has to be formally trained in education, but to train someone to be a surgeon, you don't need training in education. Seems, seems a bit flawed. I think uh, to be a bit more practical about it, I think that the people who are designing curriculum, uh, who are designing who are sitting on training boards who are hospital level supervisors i think there's going to be increasing expectation that 
that people holding those positions, particularly paid positions, would have some educational qualification. And then to the people who are doing the um, day-to-day supervision of trainees, I think they should have some experience of education, which now is generally a requirement from RACS to do a one- or two-day course. I think that's good. I don't think everybody needs to have you know, a master's in education. But at the same time, I think there should be increasing value placed on formal training in education because it does provide significant advantages. How much you need of it probably depends on what your role is in the system. And so I think as we make that cultural change to valuing education more and there's more paid positions, which increases the perceived value of it and good people pursue it, um, that'll, that'll improve the overall standard of training that um, trainers receive. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing. We've talked about it many times. Um, training, you know, training a bunch of surgeons or a bunch of medical doctors to be better in itself is a public health mm. concept. If you can make others better, mm. or many of, many of them, all of those people should go on to perform good surgeries or treat their patients appropriately. Um, it's just, you know, we'll get to your PhD and, and your expertise in surgical training later, but it's certainly something that I hadn't thought about um you know we we get taught as medical students from people who may not necessarily be interested in training but it's good to know that there's certainly some checks and balances behind the scenes that you know you have to meet certain requirements just to teach Mm. um and you did also mention before about competency training and a question i wanted to ask you is about how um, probably when you were training surgical training in australia is traditionally a fixed time-based model but Nowadays, um, programs such as the orthopaedic training program, the AOA21 program, is moving towards a competency-based training um, which has flexible timeframes. So having completed your general surgery training and now being involved in training registrars yourself, um, what was it like training and um, what do you think the best way to train surgical registrars is? Yep. So uh, I think the moving away from rigid time-based training towards competency-based training is generally a good move. But there's some caveats to that because people generally are getting onto training programs later in life and they tend to have more social commitments, particularly family commitments. So it does become hard stretching training out into you know, one's late 30s when there's young children around. Um, I think there's a bit of a stigma in the past about uh, extending training, that if someone does an extra year of training, it's because they're not a good trainee and... So therefore, people wouldn't want to own up to that. I think moving away from that to trainees thinking that an extra year of training might benefit me, therefore it's worth doing, uh, is a better, healthier attitude. And I know some trainees have done that in recent times, and I think that's just a, a good call on their behalf that they would get benefit from another year of training, which is not to say anything about um, whether they're a good or bad trainee. I think we should move away from that, that sort of framing Uh, Whether someone takes longer to acquire a set of skills or not uh, is not really important in the long term. And they may well have other skills in abundance um, that are not as evident or particularly assessed by the program. So, yeah, I think that makes sense. We should not think so much about the, um, the, the, the time but about achieving what's needed to be ready to move on to the next stage. I also... While we're talking on this concept, I think about that at the other end of the spectrum, about getting onto the program. I see a lot of trainees who are in a rush to get on the program, and I usually cancel against that. I think people should get on the program when they're ready to start. 
So when you start, you do have some basic surgical skills. You do know a bit about being a registrar and managing ward rounds and admitting patients and being in theatre so you're ready to receive the opportunities that are going to come your way rather than rushing to get on but being a little bit underdone and, and struggling through, through the program. Well, we said struggling, um, and in reviewing um, the questions I was going to ask you, I was looking at the, the orthopedic training program. They, com- they completed an education and training review in 2013, um, and some of the qualitative data that they had um, was from an orthopedic trainee who stated they were on call from Friday 6 a.m., they stayed in the hospital and operated independently that whole weekend, and then on Monday they worked um, till 8 p.m. That's I, th- I think med students can would find that crazy um, and not believe it, but that's certainly true if you go and ask certainly some consultants and maybe even registrars. Um, is this a normal workload for surgical trainees? Is this something that you did when you were training? Uh, yeah, I have done shifts like that, um, but I'd say that that's that's phasing out. And Good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, there's quite a lot of hospitals um, where a person might be on call for the Friday, Saturday, Sunday, uh, and then work a normal Monday. And um, you know, many of us have done those sorts of shifts and had one or two hours sleep for three nights in a row, which sounds like it should be really unsafe. My experience of it wasn't that it was unsafe. It was just that it was unpleasant. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure that there, you know, the evidence is that um, if you're sleep deprived um, to a certain degree, it's equivalent to driving a car at 0.05. You know, there's research to back that up. Um, and and operating at a certain degree of fatigue, you know, risk starts to come into it. Most hospitals now have moved away from that, and at least in general surgery, will have a night registrar. Uh, which gives you a bit of relief. At least um, you might have a long day, but at least you can get home and get some sleep before coming back. It's probably a little bit more challenging in the smaller specialties where they don't have the capacity to always have a night ridge. Um, so I'm, I'm not as aware of the experience of plastics and orthopaedics trainees, you know, pretty busy units that, that maybe not as busy as general surgery that they're always protected by a night ridge. I, I would dare say there would still be some places around where this experience will happen. It wasn't that long ago I was a registrar and did some of those sorts of hours. Um, but I think we should be moving away from that. And if you look at America, they now have the directives on a resident work hours, the limits 80 hours per week, which might sound like a lot, but I've done lots of 80-hour weeks and don't necessarily find that particularly hard. It just means you can't do a lot of stuff outside of medicine. And in, in Europe, it's... Um, it's a limit of um, 48 hours a week, which doesn't sound like much at all to me. <laughs> in Australia, we don't have any specific regulations. Uh, we just have some guidelines. Uh, but generally, we, things have been moving towards the guidelines, so there hasn't been a need to impose regulation. Right. Well, hopefully by the time I'm in that, <laughs> those boots, I'm not having to worry about 48-hour workdays or whatever it is. Um, let's change topics a little bit. What can you tell me about the St. Francis Orphanage in Nairobi, Kenya? Yeah. Uh, so when, when I think of this, um, I'm reminded of um, my naivety and ignorance, uh, which is a healthy, healthy thing, I think, to always remind oneself of. <laughs> so the, the background here is... Um, Uh, As a medical student, I was involved in a charity group that raised money during the the year, and over summer we went over to this orphanage in Kenya, Um, and the initial plan had been to help with some refurbishments of the orphanage. Um, Some people from uh, the charity group had visited previously and got to know the person who was running the orphanage, 
and was planning to come back to rebuild one of the dormitories. And that was it. We ended up raising a lot more money than we expected. We raised about 150000 and we got some significant um, sponsors from America and UK. Um, so we actually had enough money to rebuild the orphanage, to buy some new land and rebuild a better quality orphanage. The orphanage itself was on a um, half-acre block. It was a six-bedroom house with um, about 200 children living in it. So it was pretty extreme, um, you know, 15 20 plus children sleeping in a cement floored room which was also their school so anyway that was the what we thought we were going into as we got over there and we started doing some sort of health assessments and we picked up a few problems and we um, helped them get access through the local um, hospital system um, for their surgery they needed and so on but we also started realizing a lot of the children weren't orphans. Um, they are perhaps you could describe them as economic orphans. Their, their family were struggling to um, finance keeping them within the family and pay for schooling. And this orphanage was um, promoting itself as a school. And a lot of children had been sent there by their families thinking they were going to this good quality school in, in Nairobi um, when that was not really the case. The school results certainly were not particularly good. Um, so once we realised that, we realised we really, in some ways, we could become complicit in this, um, you could say, scheme. If we were to rebuild, buy a new property and rebuild a nice orphanage, we, we might encourage more of the same, more children being dislocated from their family to come to this place. Um, I won't go into all of the details here, but suffice to say that we changed the nature of our, our program and we decided a far better program um, would be to support the children to go back to their families uh, and we'd have a, a family sponsorship program. Uh, and the one thing I'd say we got right in what we did was we had involved some local people. So we had a, a local um, leader and some social workers who were managing the program and they were instrumental in getting children back to their families. Um, a stipend was provided for families so the children could go to school and buy uniforms and for uh, food and so on. So that, that just showed to me how little I knew about um, uh, getting involved in international um, health or development programs and realised I, 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 I need to learn about this before I engage in more because there's such an easy potential for good intentions leading to unintended consequences. So I went on to do a master's in, in public health after that, which led to my interest in global surgery. So really you learned about community empowerment and how if you're going to implement some sort of program, in this case, you can't just roll up with some cash and say, we're going to do this. You actually got the community to facilitate what yes. you did. Yeah, I think that's a strong message from what I have uh, learned um, about global health is that any project um, in international person organisations to be involved in, it should really be uh, led um, by local people um, to achieve local people's goals via methodology that's appropriate to the local people and um, we as in international people, our role is to support that process, not to tell people what they need or lead everything about it. I think that's the strongest message that I've gotten out of that. In 2019 you were a recipient of the prestigious Churchill Fellowship Award and it's written on their website, recipients will travel around the world in 2020 to meet and work with leaders of influence to gain and exchange knowledge as well as experience for the betterment of themselves, their industry, community and Australia. 
This would have formed part of your PhD, but as I said, it was in 2020, so COVID-19 put a stop to that. Can you tell me about your PhD journey over the last few years and what you hope to achieve by the time you complete it? Mm -hmm. I'm just going to put in a correction there in case anyone from the Churchill Foundation is listening. This, <laughs> this, it was not actually connected to my PhD. And under the terms of the Churchill Fellowship, it can't be connected to a higher degree. So it was actually going to be different. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and obviously the uh, 2020 uh, in international travel uh, became problematic. So the plan was, um, my PhD was focused on looking at surgical education in low-income countries, and I had planned to travel to Timor-Leste and um, Papua New Guinea to look at how they were training surgeons. That also couldn't happen. And the Churchill Fellowship was to look at the use of surgical simulation uh, in surgical education and what's happening around the world in, in, in a different set of countries, really. I was planning to go to America, Canada, Ireland and England. So the, the Fellowship Award was... For you, the sur- for Sean the surgeon, not yeah. Sean the PhD student. That's right. Yeah, yeah, okay. Okay. yeah. yeah. Um, so both those things got stymied by COVID nineteen. Um, so where things are at now is the Churchill Fellowship will hopefully happen later this year, and so I'll be going to look at a few hospitals and universities around the world how they're using simulation uh, within the hospital and within the university environment for surgical education. And when people think simulation, often people immediately think about um, high-tech um, ways of recreating operations. I'm probably more interested in how we can use simulation for communication, team-based training, um, in-situ simulations, so simulation in the, in the hospital environment, clinical environment. So I'll be looking to learn more about that and take some ideas that I can bring back to Austin and Unimelp. And for, for the PhD, I'm going to have to change topic. I'm not realistically going to be able to easily get over to some of the countries I wanted to. And so I'm going to be looking at um, using simulation in surgical training. This, how I'm going to craft that exactly is still um, been worked out, but I'm, I'm interested in, in in situ simulation in particular. Could you give some examples on the sort of simulation you mean? Yep, well, um, what, what we're working on at the moment at Austin, where there's a lot of people as a community of practice all interested in simulation, is around trauma, which is a, is a great team sport within uh, medicine. So in situ simulation, in that sense, might be a trauma call is made in the ED. The trauma uh, team is formed, and this might be for a, what we could say is a simulated patient, um, but people don't know that at the time the trauma call is made. So everyone arrives thinking it's a genuine trauma call. Um, so there you can see what response times are like. And then there might be a scenario to play out um, for a period of time. And so uh, by having these impromptu simulation sessions, particularly at a hospital where we don't have a lot of high-acuity trauma calls, it's a good way of sharpening people's skills, practising team formation, communication, identifying where the equipment is rather than you know, needing to do the, the um, post-mortem Caesar in ED, which happens, you know, once in a lifetime and nobody can find the equipment. You know, that's something we've simulated so we know where the equipment is and who we need to communicate to. So it's a good way of troubleshooting uh, system errors and uh, testing out how systems work. So it's not using dummies or cadavers, it's fire drills, you know, war games. It's actually... <laughs> yes. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. interesting. So you said team sport, and the Orthopod is a musculoskeletal health-focused podcast. 
And so it would be remiss of me to skip over this, which is individual sport. <laughs> I still can't quite believe it, but as a surgeon, as a dad, as a PhD candidate and a Churchill Fellowship scholarship holder, um, you run a two and a half hour marathon, which is elite. That's literally at the elite level. That's the, that's the, the threshold. Uh, to give people an idea of how difficult that is, you run 42 kilometres at an average of three and a half minutes per kilometre. Um, to anyone listening, go and try and run 1K at that pace and you'll see how hard it is. So why do you like distance running and why don't you play golf like a normal surgeon? <laughs> I've been running for a long time. I started running in, in high school and initially it was around um, the enjoyment of competition and and camaraderie because we had a really good running team. A lot of my good friends were runners at, at high school. As I've got older and running's become more of a solo pursuit, uh, what I get out of running's probably changed. And running's now a lot about sort of character development and psychological development, which might sound a bit strange. But if you do enough running on your own over long distances, you might come to understand it. And so running, uh, one way you might understand, it's a bit like meditative practice for, for me. Um, some purists might disagree that that's not meditation, but we'll put that to the side. So running's taken on a whole new dimension of, of meaning for me, although I still enjoy competition and look forward to getting back to lowering that marathon time from 2.27. You actually think you want to do that? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Okay, fair yeah. enough. <laughs> I feel I have a little bit of dissatisfaction. Um, the, the previous marathons, I had Achilles problems, and so I was on track for a better time, and in, in the latter part of the race, Achilles issues slowed me down. And I suppose while we're this is an orthopedic podcast, uh, my last marathon was two years ago, almost to the day actually, and it's, it took me 12 months of very dedicated rehab to get over my Achilles problem and get back to running pain-free. That was, in, that was involving a sports medicine physician, uh, a physio who was a, a guru in Achilles tendinopathy, saw an exercise physiologist uh, and a running technique coach, um, and a Pilates instructor, and sort of all of those skills combined, um, a lot of changes in technique and strength and conditioning has got me to a point of being pain-free. And another year later, I'm back to what I'd say is competitive level training. Uh, so now that I'm here, I, I hope in another year's time I'll, I'll have a crack and get that marathon time down. Have you got any runs coming up soon? Um, around July there will be the, uh, a 10K race at Albert Park. It's part of the Athletics Victoria Seasons, the Victorian Road 10K Championship. So it's usually a pretty fast 10K race. So I'll, um, that's the next, next race on the agenda. Yeah, okay. What, what shoe will you be using for that race? Uh, so I wear the, the, the Nike uh, Zoom flies, the fast uh, shoes that people be familiar with. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Right, so you're a doper as well. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you very much for advising me on getting a pair of those shoes. I've started smashing my PBs as well. Yeah, they're um, good. They, they make a big difference of recovery. Yeah, I've noticed that too. They're fantastic. Yeah. Um, we're, not a, we're not trying to flog Nike products <laughs> here, but they are really interesting. Yeah. Just one other thing with the running. Do you mm. feel it helps you as a surgeon, helps you, say, concentrate? I mean, yep. I don't know how many... I mean, what sort of general surgery pro, um, surgeries are there that sort of can go for a long, long time, which require, you know, really dedicated focus? You know, the times I've sat in on theatre with you, it's usually been sort of simple procedures mm. that, uh, you know, maybe maximum 45 minutes to an hour. I can't mm -hmm. sort of think of any really long operations. You know, you're capable of running at a 
full-on pace for mm-hmm. two and a half hours, hopefully yeah. less. Um, but can you, you sort of get where I'm going? Yeah, I do, yeah. So certainly um, the ability, if you can run a couple of hours at a pretty high tempo solo, that ability to concentrate does translate well to operating. And although I, yeah, I don't do super complex and long operations like you know, pancreatectomy or esophagectomy or a liver transplant or something that could take many, many hours, the, even just being able to really focus for one or two hours intently is very helpful. The, the other thing um, that running has helped me with is controlling emotions. Uh, so to, to race well, you need to, and this is true for any sports performance, and you'll have some understanding of this from your cricket experience, performance requires ability to control your emotions, not get overwhelmed by the occasion, occasion to deal with upsets and difficulties, which can all happen in, in marathon running. Uh, and, and Roger Kneebone, who's a surgeon and educationalist in the UK, he talks about how surgery is a combination of science, art and performance, and he specifically seeks out performers to learn from them. And I think that's a really good way of thinking about it. So in the operating theatre, there are a lot of stresses around. Uh, there's a lot of people to interact with. Uh, in some ways, you can perceive of yourself as being on show. And if things are going badly, that can be pretty quite stressful. So what I've learned from running has helped me to dissociate from that and not take on those emotions and just stay focused on what I need to do. There's one of my favourite quotes is from Kathy Freeman, is I don't think about winning, I don't think about losing, I just think about what I need to do. And I just think that's a fantastic way to live. So that's Kathy Freeman is my spiritual guide. And that, that's just a really useful way to, to function in theatre, just focus on what you need to do. Don't get distracted by external things and don't let emotions overwhelm you. So running is very helpful for developing that ability. Okay, what a fantastic thing to end on. Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Stevens. My pleasure, Liam. Cheers. Thank you for listening to The Orthopod. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram by the handle at SomaGradGroup or on our website, somagradgroup.com. See you in the next episode.